Let's have a party all beneath. Let's have a big bash all beneath. Let's celebrate now all beneath. Another scandal all beneath. That's what your vote is gonna get. Hey, town, you ain't seen nothing yet. We're going all the way at the Welcome, welcome to the latest What's Left in Albany. I'm your host, Dan Platt. After over a month, uh, why? Well, I finally got the Rona. Uh, first, you never forget your first time, I guess, and it uh, hits you harder. The, you know, I, 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 I hung out for four years. I, I, you know, I got away with it. But uh, I finally uh, flew close to the sun, unmasked a little too much in a social space. Uh, of strangers uh, i kind of i knew enough of them there but that doesn't mean it wasn't a risk so anyway uh i was out a lot of coughing uh long you know not, not quite long rona obviously i'm better for the most part I'm st- i feel like 90 percent better but anyway this is what's left in albany this program covers the built environment politics and people of albany as well as the surrounding tri-city area and region Featuring discussions with the underliners of community projects or organizations to discuss themselves and what they're doing. I also discuss local news and issues in an effort to get the full picture of what's going on. I'm Dan Platt, your friendly neighborhood eco-socialist, posing our neoliberal present and potential fascist futures, while promoting the build-out of a commons economy and delegated democracy. Waging a clandestine insurgency against confusion and ignorance, as we can only hope to change our conditions until we understand them. Whatever the outrages or joys we have for this city, we are going to find whatever's left. Please clap. So, uh, no drops. But otherwise, I am going to continue, at long last, (laughs) part three of my reading of Mayor Corning's biography, the chapter on the Albany political machine. So let's see if I can remember. I didn't really plan a good summary for you, but the last bit was kind of about the enforcement mechanisms, how, you know, it's very the Trump, you know, Trump's way of doing things is is rather obtuse and hard to understand for the liberal educated person. But if you're blue collar, if you go back to these conservative ways of loyalty, family dynamics, but like family in a almost as a like family is a cage. I mean, it provides you this and comfort and security, but only so long as you're loyal. And if you're not, if you try to you know expand yourself or have some kind of individual initiative, you're going to get slapped down somehow, or at least there's a fear of that. And it's going over a bunch of things, and particularly the life or the ways of Dan O'Connell, the big party boss here in Albany for 70 not the full 75 years but for a majority of the 75 years 
of the main democratic machine. Still, of course, this is a democratic one run town, but it's not classified as a machine anymore, particularly since neoliberalism set in. Uh, what does that mean? It kind of means, I mean, like real estate rules more than local party organization or civil society. Civil society is submissive or sublimated to capital interests because capital is just, it depends on where it goes. So it goes out to Silicon Valley. Well, let's try to get a little tech valley going here. Let's bring a little bit of capital back, just enough to have a middle class operate. And, um, you know, so we can have a restaurant industry or something. But I left off uh, where kind of going about uh, Dan O'Connell's home life. You know, he, he was a big Civil War buff. He loved these Confederate generals, of course, and, and so on. And there's, and there's a number of, like, characters, but they're all kind of boring at the end of the day. But this one is now the, the reverend, the actual Catholic influence on his life. And, and so Dan's reverend was Reverend Joseph Romano, a Catholic priest assigned to Dan's parish. I'm starting to read now, page 184, though it's not like I expect you to follow along. But uh, he's from the St. He was assigned the Dan's Parish, St. James, had a beleaguered history with the political boss. Romano was appointed chaplain of the Albany Fire Department, and became chief spokes- spokesman and organizer when the department battled the machine in the 1970s in an acrimonious struggle over its unionization. Because until then, unions were not allowed in this city, period. So the police and fire were pretty much the first to unionize in this city outside of state workers because that was over the part uh, machine's head. But otherwise, they're very anti-union, very conservative, very right-wing, because any power elsewhere in society took away from their own. And when it comes down to it, whether it be the church, whether it be business owners, they all had to be, you know, part of the family, so to speak. Part of, they were part of the machine. So Dan, rapidly anti-union, referred to Faro Romano in a radio interview as that Dago son of a bee. The quote brought the wrath of every old lady with a rosary down on Dan, increased sympathy for the union, and helped turn the tide in the department's favor. Romano said, quote, Corning told me years later that was the dumbest thing that the party ever did, letting the press get to Dan for that comment, Romano said. Romano took communion to Dan, a shut-in in his later years, at his house on Whitehall Road, which was 49, I looked it up, once or twice a week. He also heard Dan's confession. It was very childlike, and he was in and out of reality at that point, Romano said. We talk about the past, about people from the old neighborhoods and the kidnapping, which was Dan's um, nephew, That was, and this was back in 1933, and later released after the O'Connells paid a ransom. Other history. We shoot the breeze about the Civil War. Dan actually left me some books, and so on. In the fall of 1994, I took an open house tour of Dan's place. Oh, sorry. Okay, so I'm going to skip this. This was this is the author talking about his, touring his house. It's just a bu- It's like uh, just talking about his stuff, which is not important for our purposes. So it's about like his family and what's left of it. Uh, at least back in the 70s, uh, there were other perks of being born into the machine. Grassy was part of the large O'Connell contingent that was invited to President John F. Kennedy's inaugural and the festivities that followed, at which she met JFK's siblings. What I could see, Dan ran things as old-fashioned Irish politics, Grassy said. It started in the saloons, expanded block by block into the neighborhoods, and grew into a shared sense of belonging and helping each other. At least that's the way its backers would talk about it. I was also I was always mistaken for Dan's grandson, and everybody talked about him as larger than life, some kind of legend. 
said Dan O'Connell's grandnephew of Dan and grandson, John Sully, Sully O'Connell. He lives in Albany, works for the state, and he and his wife of two children. To me, Dan was like any other elderly relative. Happy to see you, kindly, hard of hearing. O'Connell said his uncle Dan was very generous financially to his parents when they were first married. His father, John O'Connell, lives in Voorheesville and works for Niagara Mohawk, which is now National Grid. Dan was very shrewd and knew a lot of, about human nature and the needs of the people. Well, the conservative kind. Dan and Erasmus worked together to achieve their common goal, which was to stay in power. That's, that's pretty much it. Erasmus was the active, out-front partner, and Dan was the silent partner pulling strings behind the scene. Many have suggested Dan was a political genius. If he was, he stored the strategy on his head. When Dan died in his sleep at the age of 91 on February 28, 1977, the monolithic political machine he had created began to vanish with him. Dan left almost no paper trail. He wrote very few letters, did not keep a diary or produce memoirs. He gave no extensive interviews. He conducted business face-to-face. -face. That's certainly the safest way of doing things. Rarely even over the phone. He didn't keep records. But a few insiders gained entry into Dan's template for Albany politics. One of them, State Supreme Court Judge Edward Conway, was ironically an Irish Catholic Republican. But Conway's father, John Conway, was a close personal friend of Dan's. He read Dickens with Dan and gave Conway the nickname Mr. Wickfield, after the kind lawyer in Dickens' novel David Copperfield. Uh, this was part of his thing. He, he gave everyone nicknames from Dickens. The elder Conway would become Dan's personal lawyer for 30 years after Conway sold Hendricks Brewery to Dan for $25,000 in the early 30s. The Conways bought a big house in Cahoes with the cash where Edward grew up. The elder Conway had been elected Albany County District Attorney in 1923, defeated by the machine the next election and the last Republican to hold the post for 50 years. Conway's father took the brewery in lieu of legal fees after representing bootleggers who were secretly piping beer underground illegally from the brewery during Prohibition. Conway estimated the brewery earned Dan a few million dollars profit during those three decades of, of its operation. Dan extended his loyalty to Edward Conway, the son, despite his GOP status. Dan made Conway a judge, largely to remove Conway from his position as the Albany County GOP, GOP chairman where he was making gains, Conway believed, confirming for Conway. And this is, this is the important paragraph for me, because this lays out his rules, how the machine operated, how ethnic politics worked before the civil rights movement, or, like, or how, if you were in an ethnic group, how did you have any access to government? And it was through machine, which was its maybe only redeeming quality, but again, it's like, it's not overcoming racism, it's reinforcing it in a way, in many ways. But these are his rules, relayed by Conway, Dan's cynical worldview. So this is like, he didn't write anything down, this is the closest thing you get to like his strategy. Dan's fundamental rules were these. <clears throat> the cop on the beat takes care of the Jews and lets them know their shops will be safe if they vote Democratic. They're so scared, they do. The Italians are run by matriarchs, so Dan knew to talk to the women there and got those votes. He knew never to have a Catholic mayor. Let the Protestants run the city, and that's all they get. The Irish get the rest. The Jews get city judge. The Italians get county judge. The cops make out on their own beat with whatever graph comes their way. The firemen he called Pinocchi players, and they get a meal and a place to sleep, and that's good enough for them. Don't fix the potholes because they're the best deterrents to speeding. 
let the public schools rot and the private and Catholic schools thrive, and the Democrats didn't have to pay for them. Keep school taxes at a minimum, just enough to keep the schools from crumbling down. Uncle Dan had a way of taking care of everybody. Everybody got a little bit. That was the secret. Spread it around. Conway also caddied for Dan's brother, Packy, and his father was one of Dan's lawyers during the baseball pool scandal. That happened in the 20s or 30s as well. Conway knew Dan's brother, Sully, too, and was unfamiliar with Sully's gambling operation. After Sully died, Dan didn't want anything to do with gambling, and he let it go. But he always kept organized crime out of Albany. Well, this is... They were the organized crime. That's the, that's the trick. Uh, but here's the anecdote. I know for a fact about a time a Chicago mobster named Syracuse Kelly was hired to knock off Dan. Dan's henchman, Walter Hickney who had served time in Danamorora under an assumed name, headed off Kelly just before my dad's office at Child's Restaurant. This is at 50 State Street. Hickney knocked Kelly out and gave him a hot, hot butt, which meant putting a bullet hole through both cheeks. Uh, then Hickney dumped Kelly on the train with a one-way ticket. The big Chicago gangster never came back to Albany again, if he's to be believed. There were never any mobs in here. Dan wouldn't let them organize. They were the mob. But uh, anyway, I do, you know, do I have to keep repeating that? But that's the thing. It's like, hey, you know, we're the good guys. There was all the bad guys. We kept them out. You know, there's those other people. You know the ones. Okay, so you know, one land organized said Alfred Bem, born in 1904 and a South Ender, who was a cop for 30 years. Uh, beginning, another type of gang, really. Uh, beginning in 1928. Bream was hired as Johnny O'Connell's bodyguard after he was released by his kidnappers. Wherever Johnny went, I went. I made sure nobody bothered him. I just got my wages as a cop for doing it. Nothing extra. So personal bodyguard as, as a Albany police officer. Nice. Public good. The O'Connells ran a good type ship and did the right thing and were very popular. They all had a role. Now, of course, if they always did the right thing, why they have to intimidate and cheat in every election and so on and so on. Well, they always have the blinders on. Father Romano said Albany remained an open city long after the days of Prohibition and Legs Diamond. After Sully died, Dan gave the gambling operation to other machine lieutenants. Romano said, you didn't open a card room in the city without their say-so. Romano saw in Dan and Erastus both the bright and dark sides, the good and evil, the complex mix of competing motivations, as all Catholics do, I suppose. When Romano was spearheading the drive to unionize the fire department to provide better wages, benefits, and working conditions, he observed firsthand nasty tactics and hardballed actions as vicious as a fighting cock. But he also saw the anonymous kindness. Romano was assigned to St. Anne's Parish in the South End and said Dan practically subsidized the entire budget of the church even after he moved up to Whitehall Road into the St. James Parish. Romano watched Dan hand out stacks of $20 bills to people down their luck who streamed to his home. Romano said of Dan, He always spoke of Italians and blacks in derogatory slang, but he also used that for his own Irish. So he hated everybody. Or at least fought a little of everyone. In that sense, he was always a South End bartender. On the other hand, he was very much a Renaissance man and generally sensitive and concerned about the poor. It wasn't only for the votes, but a deep paternalism. And of course, paternalism is a dirty word to me because it's like, I'm your daddy. You're going to do what I want. You're going to do as I say because I'm the authority around here. You're just, you're, you're all little children, little children who cannot take care of yourselves. 
He was critical of Irish bishops who had lost their empathy for the poor. He was the softest touch in the world to a person in need, as long as you came knocking at his door, of course. The same went for Erasmus. Romano watched the mayor execute down-and-dirty, bare-knuckle politics during the fire department's drive for unionization. But Romano also remembered numerous random acts of kindness. But that's the point. It's random. It's not systemic. It's not an institution. It's not something that's actually social. It's based on their mood or who it is. Individualistic poppycock. But I digress. Erasmus never missed a wake of machine old-timers. I remember Corning paid for me to bury an old double old, an old double amputee, wheelchair-bound lady from the South End, whose husband had taken care of Dan's fighting cocks. Covering the burial costs was in addition to Erasmus putting in a wheelchair ramp at her house. But of course, ADA is until the 80s, but were there going to be disability, you know? Well, there still aren't ramps at City Hall, I can tell you that much. So you get a ramp at your house, but you can't go in this, to mine house. But I'm nitpicking. I'm nitpicking. Judge Corman, whose parents grew up in the South End and attended grade school with Dan before he dropped out, understood the worlds of both Dan and Erasmus. They were two strong personalities raised in very different situations, but they were close because they had the same goal preserving political power. That's the second time that's mentioned. Hell, there must see, they did all these nice things, but their main goal was just being on top. What kind? What you know? What 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 kind of dissonance in all these people? I'm doing okay. He gave me twenty bucks. I'm yeah, okay. Hell, there must have been some arguments between them, but I never knew of a major disagreement they ever had. Now, of course, the, the past sections uh, in the past two episodes, I've talked about how or read how Rasness was pretty much a follower. He didn't really have his own drive or interests or passions outside of. Uh, standard uh, wasp activities of of um, not even camping but just you know outdoors in it up in the in the rich kind of way both erasmus and dan possess not only exceptional intelligence but extraordinary memories the two men seem to have photographic recall when it came to people and politics you know they're extroverted guys i guess even though erasmus is described as being like the shy diminutive kind of guy Nobody could track it or steal it either. You know, maybe they're on the spectrum for all we know. But uh, let's see. But anyway, a lot of singing praises here. Nobody could tack it or steal it either because Dan never wrote it down. Dan would go street by street, block by block, ward by ward, and tell you who lived in each house, where they worked, what their relationship was to other people in the neighborhood, and how they would vote. He had their knowledge of the entire city in his head, said Ray Joyce Jr., member of longtime machine family. And Dan's election estimates were right on the money, always within a few votes. Well, if you're rigging it. But Joyce said Dan taught his father his mental technique. The senior Joyce won Dan's confidence and undying loyalty because he was an Albany cop who was on the duty the night of the Johnny O'Connell kidnapping. The senior Joyce chased the kidnappers in a patrol car south of Route 9W toward Ravina, where they were last seen heading south. Joyce and his wife raised 12 kids in Albany's West End near Swishbourne Park, and Dan helped them get off the forest and into a better-paying job as a foreman at the New York Central Railroad's West Albany shops, also adjacent to the West End. A little background, which I have in my notes. So the Joyce's, as mentioned, um, let's see, can you guess the name of the county office building? Yes, that's right. It's named after Harold Joyce. And uh, the 13th County uh, District Legislator, which is the uh, West End and, and around, well, that's also Ray Joyce, 
the son, the grandson or what have you. So, uh, you know, it's, they were just a low level cop, but you know, you, you do right, you know, you do a little favor, you're there at the right time and boom, your, uh, your family is set for generations to come or so, so whatever, what have you. Let's see. We'll go to the Macanini's later. So, uh, said Ray Joyce Jr., the foundation was keeping close contact with the people. The committee men were expected to be out year-round, not just around election time, ringing doorbells, going door-to-door, and asking how he could help. The structure was almost like the military in which Erasmus and Dan trained. The hierarchy went from the committeeman to the ward leader to Dan. It all ran on loyalty. If Dan asked you to do something, that was it. You did what you were told. No questions asked. There was the party and the Catholic Church in that order. Yes, but, you know, okay, yeah, maybe it would be nice to have committeemen actually come around and knock on your doors outside of election time. There's primary election time as well, otherwise that's the only time you kind of see council people. Or you see them at social functions if you go to social functions of import. But sometimes they wouldn't come to such social functions, not regularly anyway. But both involve ritual observances. It has been suggested the voting booth was more important than the confessional to an Albany Democrat. I know that my father would go into the voting booth with my mother because he didn't trust her to vote Democratic, said Kate Walsh Grober, whose husband, George Grober, worked as an office assistant for Mayor Corning in 1976 until his his death, which was in the 80s. Walsh's family members were loyal Democrats. Her dad, Michael Walsh, was given a job in the city streets department. Her uncle ran Kelly's Grill at Orange and Swan. It was a way of life, she continued. Now, Kelly's Grill at Orange and Swan, there's, those are all empty lots now. They're all, like, well, I mean, yeah, yeah it's, all, it's Orange and Swan. Uh, it was a very, it was a way of life, she continued. At our bar, they only served Hendrix beer on tap, you know, the one owned by the O'Connells. The Corning Wealth was something that people like my family in Arbor Hill didn't mind as long as he got the job done, kept taxes low, and gave the people de- decent city services. Does Arbor Hill seem like it gets good city services these days? They're not. At least, like, God, in um, in the last 10 years, there was, like, these abuses where, like, there was this thing where the hoops were removed on the basketball court in the Arbor Hill Park, and then, like, a dumpster was put on it, you know, to prevent teens from using it. The old-time ward healers, like Reuben Gershomitz, born in 1913 and a South Ender who knew the O'Connells growing up, lamented that the machine's tactics of yore won't work anymore. Quote, In hard times, the $5 vote in helping people out to lower their assessment was pure gold, whose loyalty was rewarded, his loyalty was rewarded by Corning, with a job as manager of the city-owned Wellington Hotel. Now, where is, well, obviously, with a lot of public money, that row of buildings is active again, or at least fixed up. But for about 30 years, the Wellington Hotel was decay- was a decaying slack, which was basically collapsing on the back end. It's mostly now the parking garage for the Capitol Center now. You know, it's, it's, it's like there's fronts, but doesn't really go back, back that far. The public is much better educated nowadays. This new crop of intellectuals won't go for the old methods, and the people in the party are too independent. They don't do what they're told. Corning and O'Connell meshed and everyone followed their orders. That won't happen anymore. I guess it won't. There definitely is something. I'm, I'm reading now a book about the schooled society and the kind of, you call, you know, the writer calls it a 
education revolution that in the last 150 years, it really is a new sociological thing where a majority of people can read and have education. And that there is a bit of an education treadmill coming up where, you know, the main case of the book is that usual social theories are that uh, society at large affects the education system. His is that, well, the education system as its own institution is actually more independent than it seems and affects society in a greater way or in a way uh, greater than, say, schools are just job training for capitalists or, as the Marxists would say, or what was the other way? The other theory, which was like functionalism, that it's just like it's just for social training, you know, and you see it online. It's in memes. It's it's experience people have. Oh, you know, ring the bell. It trains you to just go to work on time. Certainly there. It's certainly part of the Prussian method. But it says something that this education is meant to just train the next crop of obedient workers. But then you have these machine autocrats who say, oh, these people are too intellectual now. They're not just going to follow orders. What a shame. So O'Connell's political genius reached its apex with its, his grooming of Corning, installing him as mayor in 1941. This is, we're getting into the conclusion now. Shortly after Pearl Harbor attack. Wartime, as it, is, as it had with O'Connell, because he was first elected or gained power in the 20s after World War I, would shape in important ways Corning's political dynasty. Three years after his inauguration, Corning passed up deferment possibilities and enlisted as an army grunt at Dan's urging. It was the persona of Corning as an across-the-classes mayor who could mingle equally with blue-collar or blue-blood, encouraged and nurtured by the boss that was one of Dan's greatest political insights, and their shared goal of holding on to power at all costs. Now, you certainly don't have that nowadays, right? You know, you have the people who pile around in the nonprofit sector or the business sector and you have the people you know the black chamber of commerce or the regional chamber of commerce and then you have uh, almost everybody else <laughs> there's there's these real you know class divides and you kind of have maybe people who are hustling hustling uh, i call it um trying to get a class above you know gain some social mobility through entrepreneurship and making their own way and you know d- 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 you know real estate usually because that's the surefirest way to actually make the kind of income necessary to actually rise in, uh, above uh, your class station, you know, on top of the bodies of tenants and other workers. For 36 years, Corning played the urbane alter ego, the aristocratic mayor, to O'Connell's coarse and street-smart political boss, longest-running performance anywhere on the American political stage. It is an act that is unlikely ever to be repeated. The charisma of Corning and the deep reverence Albanians felt for their perennial mayor has not been replicated in his successors tom whalen and jerry jennings how could it be mayor corning maintained his popularity over and definitely not maintained by cindy sheehan mayor corning maintained his popularity over such a long time when the world was changing drastically around him and he remained constant as a larger than life figure this is a quote from vincent mcardo jr who was a corporation counsel under corning and the city's lawyer since 1971 Corning had an extraordinary presence, and you knew you were with someone special that only comes along once in a while. But kisser, right? In 97, Leonard Weiss, a judge backed by the machine from city court to state supreme court, is re- retired from the bench and is trying to resurrect the glory days of the machine as chairman of the Albany County Democratic Organization. This is back in 97, mind you. This is a good, like, cat coda here. He tries to follow the lead of his mentor, 
who is Corning, whom Weiss considers almost a father figure. But people don't respond in the same way to the old rules of loyalty and hard work and eventual rewards for dues paid. In his office at the organization's headquarters, Weiss hung two portraits, Dan and Erasmus. Pillars of the machine looked down at him all day, and he said he tries to borrow inspiration from their strength as he slogs through the daunting task before him. Now, the other book I've read, speaking as Dan Platt here, uh, written in the 80s called uh, Middle American Individualism. And it's mostly about how since the 60s, and especially the 70s, most Americans, middle American or otherwise, do not trust organizations. They do not want to join organizations. Everyone's kind of way more anarchist uh, than they might let on, even when they're conservative. Uh, they don't want an organized society. They don't want, you know, they don't trust it. And it's interesting that there's such nostalgia, especially among the old, for the good old days. But they do not retain any of the social forms that requ- that were required. Why? Well, because the world did change. And ruled by capital after 1972, instead of ruled by labor or actual, you know, political organizations like the Dems, you know, money rules way more than it even did before. And where was I going with that? But just, 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 just to point out, like yeah, the downfall of the political machine is also the downfall of almost all civil society as well. Now that it doesn't exist, it's always being built or rebuilt, but it's always trying to get its footing, and it's never that strong, um, as seen by the fact that, let's see, the, the usual studies about political, national level politics, you know that. When it comes to if you compare popular opinion with what's passed and legislated, it's always completely opposite. In 1996, the machine notched a few victories to brighten the gloom of 1995's infighting and public squabbles, including an FBI investigation for financial irregularities, as well as a string of losses to insurgent Democratic and Republican candidates. Insurgent Democrats like Jerry Jennings, who was like the non-machine guy at the time but then you look at i i i found some old pictures of him standing with you know the old machine boys so he was he seemed to be in the apparatus but he was one of those guys not taking any like the orders anymore otherwise we'd have mayor mckinney or mayor uh joyce worse yet the city and county are struggling uh to stay afloat anyway i keep interrupting myself worse yet the city and county are struggling to stay afloat financially, remaining in a downsizing mode as a Republican governor in the executive mansion, which would be George Pataki, shipped jobs out of the region and shut down the spigot of Democratic state patronage jobs that they had enjoyed for years under Democratic governors. Quote, O'Connell and Corning had lots of jobs to give out. They could put people to work, Weiss said. I don't have the jobs. It's hard to be chairman without jobs. Jobs, jobs, jobs. <laughs> But it makes makes me think, uh, reading this made me think about how, like, who has the power is who the job creators are. And for the last decade and a half, or, you know, 30 years, or rather since, you know, Reaganomics, the job creators are, you know, the real estate industry, bankers, and so on, the job, you know, the rich, the the, the Romneys, the job creators. Uh, You know, they're the makers, we're the takers, you know, and everyone else are the takers. The the bottom 50% are the takers. And uh, but but in this case, with the Democratic machine, they were creating jobs. They were the job creators making public jobs. And this kind of kept the economy moving around, you know, kept dollars local in a way um, that Walmart certainly doesn't. 
Harry Mackles, born in 1929, longtime committeeman for the machine, a county legislator and former commissioner of public works. What a resume. Knew the O'Connells growing up in the South End. Another guy who knew the O'Connells growing up in the South End. Now, of course, if you didn't know the O'Connells growing up in the South End, you weren't getting these positions. You got, what did you get? What, $20 and then $5 on election day? And in your, in your fixed tax assessment, which meant that the city would be super poor later, you know, it's, you know. Or, or the person who actually does adjust the taxes to be realistic. Well, she's a villain. Now, I sent Dan up a couple truckloads of topsoil. Okay, so, yeah, so this is just a, one last, uh, what do you call it, uh, anecdote here about how forward-thinking Dan is, even though when it comes to the city of Albany, there was no forward freaking thinking the city was decaying around them and they just sat in their you know armchairs being smug about how well they were running things but back to um, mackle's anecdote in the mid-1950s dan asked him for a favor i sent dan up a truck couple truckloads of topsoil to his summer house in the helderbergs he recalled dan was about 70 at the time i remember my driver coming back shaking his head Dan told him how he was planning planning to plant fruit trees, but my driver said there was no way he'd live long enough to see the trees mature. Well, Dan lived to the age of 91, and he did see those trees bear fruit. Then another fertilizer analogy, Pawnee Noonan, grandmother of uh, Senator Gillibrand, or at least a relative, told a story about learning the lesson of political physics and opposing forces while handling patronage jobs for the machine as a Senate staffer. Quote, I'll tell our Democratic members if they wanted to put their girlfriend on the payroll, fine. But only do it after a Republican senator put his girlfriend on the payroll, said Noonan. Then each one has something on the other, and neither one will talk or tell or rat. I had to keep repeating that message all the time. Don't crap where you eat. Somehow, despite the harsh realities Weiss faces in 1997, the machine lives on and on and on, longer than any political scientist could have predicted, still bearing fruit in the orchard planted and fertilized by Dan and Erasmus. Ironically, Albany does not have public fruit trees. So I guess they have fruit trees. You know, the machine guys have fruit trees. Um, although, actually, no, it is a project to have fruit trees in Washington Park now, but there, it's, it's a joint, it's a public-private partnership with Nine Pin Cider. So I'm not, not sure how much of that fruit is going to the uh, the starving or what have you. So um, there is another chapter I would read eventually, but that will be its another like its own series because again, you know, three episodes to read one of these babies. But it's basically the concluding chapter about how Mayor Corning, who was mayor for 42 years. Uh, didn't really amount up to anything. I mean, he was just, he, it was actually his, it was a good thing that the city was declining around him. It was just like, look, I'm just, I'm just keeping the boat float, you know, going. And he just didn't have any real ideas or plans except to uh, keep things going. But it was, there were these paradoxes of like, look, I want to save the pine bush. But uh, uh, he plopped down the Washington Avenue extension for all the development that would be out there. So the, his plan was, you know, okay, we'll save the north half of 787, uh, and then we'll, we'll suburbanize the entire south half, below, uh, south of 787. Not 787, what am I saying? I-90. Um, or whatever the highway going through there is. Now, I have more time. This is what's left in Albany. What is left in Albany? <laughs> it's always a rolling question, you know? It seems like, you know, it's... I found it interesting. There, there was a black-owned business named Stickies, 
and they're doing crowdfunding to save their business. Uh, I don't have any particular social commentary on this. I, I, I just found it weird because the two, the two, twice I went there, they were both pretty much out of everything. And it wasn't that late into the night. They were out of si- vegetable sides. They were out of, uh, it's like, I, I got the fish. It's, 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 it's a fried chicken place. And, and stickies, they're meant to be like a sauce place. And they don't have bottles of sauce or anything like that. I mean, I didn't get, I haven't even tried their sauce yet because I, I guess I could keep trying until like they actually have their, you know, actual food. But like the, it could be a sign that, you know, the black owned business is not capitalized well enough to be fully supplied like other restaurants. Or is it that they're not well versed in business management or like, you know, this needs to be studied. I'm not making any assumptions. I'm just relaying that like they're in trouble. They need to crowdsource, they need community support. But I'm like, but you should at least be breaking even, right? Or I mean, I'm breaking even with your own incomes, right? If this, the communities can't support you by buying your chicken, maybe you're not making enough of it. But there, there's many reasons businesses fail. Most fail within three years. That's why you know market-based economic planning is you know, it's not planning at all. But just letting people flop around and see what sticks and what what succeeds in the marketplace. It's no way to make uh, actually allow or help everyone be prosperous. But I want to cover, in a general sense, how corruption and political machines kind of work, or like you know the kind of thinking behind it. Going back to this historical reading, I'm reading from a wonderful book series that I have the all the, the whole set of that I bought one at a time though so they're not like in great shape but used bookshops you get them five dollars a piece great issues in American history and uh, and this one is it's split into three sections like one section is pre-revolution the one is revolution to civil war and then this is part three rev, um, civil war to 1980 um, so I don't know if there's no part four which is 80 to today. I'd like to see such a thing. But I love this. It's it's full of historical documents, a lot of court cases, and seeing how the Supreme Court has ruled again and again against working people, except for like some 10-year span twice. You know, one 10-year span in the 50s and 40s, and then another 10-year span like in the uh, progressive era, you know, 1910s. But otherwise, it's like there's all these court cases and some some of them are speeches or declarations. This one's an interview um, in the progressive era or progressivism part. And it is uh, basically the – well, I'll read the um, – and I like each of, each of these documents has a little intro. That's, that's really good at getting to the point. So it's George Washington Plunkett, Honest Graft, from 1905. Plunkett of Tammany Hall was a skillful and candid Tammany Skakum. His observations on politics, taken down by the reporter William Rilodon, and first published as newspaper interviews, still make rewarding reading. Plunkett's defense of what he called, well, quote-unquote, honest graft, and his disdainful account of reformers were humorously put but they were in fact a serious statement of the attitude of political leaders of his type. Plunkett became a millionaire largely through honest graft. And it's also a commentary on reformers and why I'm more of a revolutionary. I think it was, it was a question posed like, what, what, how do you feel when someone says they're a revolutionary? 
And I said, well, I'm skeptical because it depends on what kind of theory they're using behind it and what their practice is. A lot of people wear revolutionary label as like a fashion statement or, you know, Koken says, you know, I mean, hell, there's a Pepsi campaign. Join the revolution. It's used. It's commodified. Um, If it means anything, it means I'm not a reformer because the reformer will just get stuck in the cycle described here by Mr. Plunkett. So I'll use a funny voice, but, uh, you know, I don't know what I really sound like. Everybody is talking these days about Tammany men grown rich on graft, but nobody thinks of drawing the distinction between honest graft and dishonest graft. There's a lot of difference. And by the way, uh, for those who don't know the word graft, um, let's see. Today's parlance, you use the word grifter, you know, charlatan, scam, type of scam, but legal, you know. It's using the processes that are available. <laughs> so, yes, honest and dishonest graft. There's all so for example, there's you know honest graph. There's an honest uh, griff like uh, being a Bitcoin millionaire, uh, and there's dishonest graph like um, uh, God. What is even considered a dishonest scam these days? I guess the ones where you steal from the rich. There's all the difference in the world between the two. Yes, many of our men have grown rich in politics. I have myself. I've made a big fortune out of the game, and I'm getting richer every day. But I've not gone in for dishonest graft. Blackmailing, gamblers, saloon keepers, disorderly people. You know, like Dan O'Connell. And neither has any of the men who make big fortunes in politics. And you'll see that uh, his honest graft is basically real estate deals. Like uh, a little another kind of person we know. Um, there's an honest graft, and I'm an example of how it works. I might sum it up by this saying: I've seen my opportunities, and I took them. Just let me explain my by examples. My party's in power in the city, and it's going to undertake a lot of public improvements. Well, I'm tipped off, say that they're going to lay out a new park at a certain place. I see my opportunity, and I take it. I go to that place and I buy up all the land I can in the neighborhood. Then the board of this or that makes it plain public, and there is a rush to get my land, which nobody cared particularly for before. Ain't it perfectly honest to charge a good price and make a profit on my investment and foresight? Of course it is. Well, that's honest graft. I mean, because he's basically acting like any other real estate mogul, any other uh, profiteer on Wall Street, banker. But they're guessing, they're gambling, you know. He he knows for sure Park's going in and the property values will go up. That's where it's against the law and wrong. But basically it's it's any it's just any, any other kind of business. Or supposing it's a new bridge they're going to build. I get tipped off and I buy as much property as I can that has to be taken for the approaches. I sell at my own price later on and drop some more money in the bank. Now, of course, if it's the public buying the bridge, then they have to buy the land from him. So it's like he's getting paid twice. Uh, wouldn't you? It's just like looking ahead in Wall Street or in the coffee or cotton market. It's honest graft, and I'm looking for it every day of the year. I will tell you, frankly, that I've got a good lot of it, too. I'll tell you one of, of, of one case. They were going to fix up a big park, no matter where. I got onto it and went looking for uh, about it for land in the neighborhood. I could get nothing out of bargain but a big piece of swamp, but I took it fast enough and held on to it. What turned out was just that I, what I counted on. They couldn't make the park complete without Plunkett's swamp, and they had to pay a good price for it. 
Now, this is also how the Flushing Meadows Park was uh, came about. You know, they had um, a lot of speculation going on about that. And that, that was meant to be uh, uh, Robert Moses' masterpiece, you know, for the New York World's Fair in the 60s. Well, a different story for a different time. No, is there any, you know, and they had to go pay a good price for Plunkett Swamp. Anything dishonest in that? Up in the watershed, I made some money, too. I bought up several bits of land there some years ago and made a pretty good guess that they would be bought up for water purposes later by the city. Somehow, I always guessed about right. Shouldn't I be enjoying the profit of my foresight? It was rather amusing when the condemnation commissioners came along and found piece after piece of the land in the name of George Plunkett of the 15th Assembly District, New York City. They wondered how I knew just what to buy. The answer is, I seen my opportunity and I took it. I haven't confined myself to land. Anything that pays is in my line. I told you how I got rich and by honest graph. Now let me tell you that most politicians who are accused of robbing the city get rich the same way. They didn't steal a dollar from the city treasury. They just seen their opportunities and took them. That is why, when a reform administration comes in and spends a half million dollars in trying to find the public robberies they talked about in their campaigns, they don't find them. The books are always all right. The money in the city treasury is all right. Everything is all right. All they can show is that the Tammany heads of departments looked after their friends within the law and gave them what opportunities they could to make honest graft. Now, let me tell you, that's never going to hurt Tammany with the people. Every good man looks after his friends, and any man who doesn't isn't likely to be popular. If I have a good thing to hand out in private life, I give it to a friend. Why shouldn't I do the same in public life? Another kind of honest graph. Tammany has raised a good many salaries. There was an awful howl by the reformers. But don't you know that Tammany gains 10 votes for every one it lost by salary raising? The Wall Street banker thinks it's shameful to raise a department clerk's salary from 1500 to 1800 a year. But every man who draws a salary himself says, that's all right, I wish it were me. And he feels very much like voting the Tammany ticket on election day, just out of sympathy. <laughs> does sound like some of the arguments that come out of conservatives, moderates, libs, they sound like this. They're not exactly the same, but like the whole like the the cat the realism the pr- pragmatism like hey you know people just people are okay with it it's all right everything's legal all the camp the packs the the it's not real bribery it's it's campaign donations and and look at Cuomo all the investigations he's never gone the he's never you know Trump he's never really going to jail it's it's all honest craft it's all honest craft Trump just sees his opportunities and he, Cuomo. He just takes care of his friends. So what if they're also donators? Building, uh, you know, Buffalo gets a new stadium, even if it isn't in Buffalo. (laughs) The fact is that a reformer can't last in politics. He can make a show for a while, but he always comes down like a rocket. Politics is as much a regular business as the grocery or the dry goods or the drug business. You've got to be trained up to it or you're sure to fall. Suppose a man who knew nothing about the grocery trade suddenly went into the business and tried to conduct it according to his own ideas. Wouldn't he make a mess of it? He might make a splurge for a while, as long as his money lasted, but his store would soon be empty. It's just the same with a reformer. He hasn't been brought up in the difficult business of politics, and he makes a mess of it every time. 
Now that kind of can be said, you know, you have a, a, a new faced reformer and the usual, uh, let's see, complaint slash, you know, point of attack is they're inexperienced. They don't know how anything works. If they get in the office, it's all going to be a mess. This was actually said about the uh, Green Party mayor in New, New Pulse. You know, my, I asked my cousin about it because he went to New Pulse in SUNY while that Green Party mayor was in office just for a term. And he said, like, oh, it was a mess. It was a mess. I asked him for details. He didn't give any, but that was his reaction. Because you have to be raised up in the machine. You have to, like, you know, go through the ranks like it's any kind of company. That's why Albany is a company town in a way. I've been studying the political game for 45 years, and I don't know it all yet. I'm learning something all the time. How, then, can you expect what they call businessmen who turn into politics all at once and make a success out of it? It is just as if I went to the Columbia University and started to teach Greek. They usually last about as long in politics as I would last at Columbia. You can't begin too early in politics if you want to succeed at the game. I began several years before I could vote. And so did every, every successful leader in Tammany Hall. When I was 12 years old, I made myself useful around the district headquarters and did work all the polls on election day. Later on, I hustled about getting out voters who had jags on and who were too lazy to come to the polls. There's a hundred ways that boys can help, and they get an experience that's the first real step in t- statesmanship. You know, yelling at people and dragging them around. <laughs> Show me a boy that hustles for the organization on election day, and I'll show you a coming statesman. That's the A, B, and C of politics. It ain't easy work to get up to Y and Z, which is what exactly? Egalitarian society? I don't think so. Uh, You have to give nearly all your time and attention to it. Of course, you may have some business or occupation on the side, but the great business of your life must be politics if you want to succeed in it. A few years ago, Tammany tried to mix politics and business in equal quantities by having two leaders in each district, a politician and a businessman. But they wouldn't mix. They were like oil and water. The politician looked after the politics of his district. The businessman looked after his grocery store or his milk route. And whenever he appeared at an executive meeting, it was only to make trouble. The whole scheme turned out to be a big farce and was abandoned mighty quick. Do you understand now? Why it is that a reformer goes and down and out in the first or second round while a politician answers to the gong every time? It is because the one has gone into the fight without training, without while the other trains all the time and knows every fine point of the game. So that was an excerpt from uh, George Plinkett, you know, an interview with George Plinkett, Honest Graph in 1905. About the place of the political machine what passes for corruption. Um, but corruption is basically just like, well, that's unfair. But isn't a usual line about the status quo warrior is, well, life is unfair. You can't all be fair. It's got to be, you got you got to break some eggs. You got to bomb some gazans if you want to have peace. You got to demolish some neighborhoods if you want to build a highway. If you want some more, some new stores, uh, you know, parking, so on and so forth. But uh, let's see, uh, the general summary, um, I guess we'll need to, as I'm wrapping up, uh, so I've read through the chapter on the political machine here in Albany, and uh, taken all together, perhaps it can lead to some more, better understanding of how things work, uh, looking at how things worked in the last century, how they work now, doing a compare and contrast. It's still very opaque. We only know this much about the Albany machine 
uh, of the 20th century because of all the people who were tired and they don't really have a, a personal stake. But you notice in a lot of the quotes from all these machine people, all they have to say is just how great it was and, and how great, you know, what a nice guy Dan Connell and Rasmus were. Even though, on the other hand, they're like, oh, but if, if you're an enemy or disloyal, you're dead. At least, well, not, you're economically dead. You're canceled. Um, not politically correct. <laughs> so, that's this week's program. Please contact me to leave feedback, suggest topics, or join me on the program. This is the What's Left in Albany show. Support the show with word of mouth, reviews, wherever you're listening to this, and with social media. Being the small operation I am, every share has an impact. I can be found on Facebook, Instagram, and Mastodon. I think I've deleted my ex account. I, I, I haven't used it. I, I'm just, no. Just no. You can find me on those three socials, Three Left Show or What's Left in Albany. Usually I have both titles. My email, for this show anyway, is show. so that's S-S-H-O-W, at Gmail. Support with dollars at Patreon or LibrePay, which is the Patreon alternative. Search for this show name. Also search the show name to find me on any podcast or music apps like iTunes, Spotify, and the like. You can find the full archive and info about this program at www.3lefts.news. The Three Left Show is my prior program, where I discuss the leftist theory, strategies, and practice for a better politics and system change. But last, I want to wish you all well and encourage all listening to vote sometime every week to a collective or community project as we discover what is actually left in Albany. We've all seen the movies about gangsters and thugs About cunning mob bosses and the lords of the drugs But listen now closely if you've got the time Cause I like to tell you about organized crime Well the old mafiosos and cinema crooks They may sport the pinstripes and sinister looks But you'll have to look elsewhere if you like to find of organized crime So raise up your hand now if you've got a job Making shit wages working until your head throbs They're making a profit from robbing you blind They say it's just business, it's organized crime and the more the rich got, then the more the rich get While everyone else lives on toil and sweat The boss makes ten dollars, you just make a dime It's not fair compensation, it's organized crime And the tide of prosperity Lifts every boat They say as you fall down And drown in their moat It's a game of roulette That you'll lose every time This economy's nothing But organized crime And if it weren't cruel enough Then the government comes Giving handouts to rich folk And taxing our crumbs We pay them to shaft us Then give us the line it's all in our 
current justice organized crime Tell me who are the crooks and who's just getting by Who's doing honest work, who's working lies The real crooks go free while the poor folk do time If you're not angry, you should be, it's organized crime Just call up the police Cause the criminals got all the cops on a leash We'll have to take things in our own hands this time If we're gonna shut down their organized crime So come on now friends, are you ready to fight? They've stolen our power like it was their right Let's take it all back from these blood-sucking slimes the real perpetrators of organized crime Now talk to your neighbors and talk to your friends Turn off the TV and start organizing We won't let them get off so scot-free this time When we topple their empire of organized crime We won't let them get off so scot-free this time when we topple their empire of organized crime Topple their empire of organized crime